The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 19th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. It's good to see you guys this morning while you're getting settled. Let me take you back to the year of our Lord, 1985. Many of you were around back then. Um, 1985, the place is Charlotte, North Carolina. There you go. All right. Uh, we were living in a three-floor townhome at the time. And my dad was out of town for work. My mom was working late, which was normal. So my older sister and I were at home. Now, she's five years older. Uh, so that means that the bedrooms upstairs were for my mom and dad and me. She got to stay downstairs in what would have been the, the basement family room area. But it's also where our TV was, right? So we were at home alone that night. And I was upstairs in my bedroom. And I heard her yell, it's on, it's on, it's on. So I immediately go running down two flights of stairs to get downstairs downstairs where the TV was and it was turned up really loud because for those who remember 1985 this were the days of MTV video premieres when everyone knew what was coming and I stood there absolutely transfixed as Madonna channeled Marilyn Monroe and began to sing Some Boys Try and Some Boys Lie, but I don't let them play. Only the boys who save their pennies make my rainy day. And I was like, oh, tell me more. Like, <laughs> totally fixated right there. Like, what else do I need to know, right? She said, these boys, they, they can beg and they can plead, but they can't see the light. It's only the boys with the cold, hard cash that will ever be Mr. Right. Okay. Because we're living in a material world. And I am a material girl. And I got it. Yeah, I didn't need modern social media. I didn't need Facebook. I didn't need Instagram to tell me that my life was measured by what I had, not who I was. I didn't need social media to tell me that. Like if it wasn't Madonna, it was Robin Leach and the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Some of you remember that from the 80s, right? Yellow mustard wasn't good enough. I needed grape coupon, right? That's what, that's that, that, and you made it, right? Andre Agassi, hanging up on my bedroom wall, told me that image was everything. Not substance, image. Spike Lee and Michael Jordan convinced me that if I just had those shoes, that I could be like Mike. Never once have I been able to fly from the foul line to dunk the ball. No matter how hard I've tried or how many pairs of Jordans I've worn in my lifetime, right? I didn't need today's technological world to tell me that my sense of enoughness, my sense of satisfaction, my sense of being enough for myself, enough for the people that I surrounded myself with, my sense of worth and social capital and even security, it wasn't about who I was, it was really what I had, right? And the dream of Dr. King that a day would come when we were Measured by the content of our character and not the color of our skin, a dream that still has still not yet been realized. It, if he would let me, and I think he might be okay with it, I would add to it, a, a dream of a day would come when we're not measured by the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the houses we live in, the schools we go to. You were living in a material world. And the gospel of materialistic consumerism, materialistic consumption, is, is shaping us into material boys and material girls. The challenge is most of us think that consumerism is simply the desire for a lot of stuff. 
or the desire for expensive stuff, however you define expensive. We like to draw lines around that, but the truth of the matter is materialistic consumerism affects every person at every income level regardless of the desire. You might not crave what you would consider fancy cars or fancy clothes or fancy watches or, or whatever things you might associate with elite status in your mind, right? And because of that, you tell yourself that this isn't your issue. And you really hope that whoever's popping into your mind right now is here to listen to me this morning, right? <laughs> One writer said, maybe we could ask ourselves these questions. How much of my contentment is based on fitting into this particular size clothing? Or being able to take my family out to eat without having to count all the pennies? Each kid having their own bedroom and their own bathroom and plenty of space to run and be free. She goes on to write materialism or consumerism. It simply means that your happiness, your joy, your contentment, your satisfaction is tied to something in this material world. A salary, however small, status, however low, possessions, however modest or threadbare. If your hearts are inordinately tied to these things beyond just the affection that we feel for what's familiar, then you're in trouble. And friends, we are in trouble indeed. Professor Stephanie Kazaa of the University of Vermont wrote that consumerism, you can call it materialistic consumerism, is a belief system and a culture that promotes consuming as the path to self and social improvement. This is the University of Vermont telling us that they are looking around at the world in which we live and are saying materialistic consumerism is a belief system. It is an entire system of belief that holds out a vision of what it says the good life is, of what it looks like for you to walk along the way towards that particular life. Professor Kazaa goes on to write that materialistic consumerism shifts the object of human life away from cultivating virtue, character, knowing truth, and being content to an artificially constructed, idealized lifestyle that is continually reinforced through media, entertainment, and advertising. Listen to what she says. Things become more important than people. Having is more important than being. And it's a lifestyle born out of this belief system that pursues distraction in an effort to keep us from thinking about the real world and its circumstances. Let's have just a, a little cold dose of reality this morning, right? It's helpful to be brought into reality. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, right? I'm not, I'm not quoting church studies here. This is the U.S. Census Bureau. As Americans, we spend more money on shoes, jewelry, and watches than on higher education. We spend more on auto maintenance than on religious or welfare activity. They would mean social spending. Three times as many Americans buy Christmas presents for their pets than buy presents for their neighbors. We have twice as many shopping centers as high schools. More Americans have declared personal bankruptcy than graduated from college. Our annual production of solid waste, stuff we throw out. I had to clarify that in between services for somebody. Right? The statistic alarmed them for the rest of the sermon. So, Our annual production of trash would fill a convoy of garbage trucks stretching halfway to the moon. According to the Department of Labor Statistics, we now as Americans work more hours each year than citizens of any other industrial country, including Japan. Full-time American workers are working 160 hours on average more than they did in 1969. That's almost an extra month in the year of work. And 69 is an important year in these studies. The American Sociological Association, working with the Department of Labor and Statistics, says that since 1969, that time when our work began to increase annually, 
The time that American parents spend with their children has declined by 22 hours a week. So we're working harder, working more to get more, and we're missing out on things that we might, at least with our mouths, say are ultimate values to us. The New York Times, again, no friend of the church, right? The New York Times ran an article entitled, Materialism is Bad for You, So the Studies Say. And it was written by a psychologist named Aline Zodbrod. She described a typical scenario in the home of a family that has been caught up in materialistic consumerism. She says, as a husband and a wife no longer connect. No more meaningful emotional connection. They're like two ships in the night, islands. They each have their own life. They do their own thing. They, they coexist. They get along, right? There's not tension per se, but there's no meaningful connection. They're so tired from the pursuit of, and she says, nice things. And she says nice because it goes through the article to let you know that she wouldn't say fancy, she won't say extravagant, she won't say elite, because again, everyone has their own definition of that compared to somebody else. So in their pursuit of what they would define as nice things, a big house, a private school for the kids, nice cars, they're time-starved and depleted. Life is nice, quote, but unsatisfying and simply no fun. On average, we know right now from different studies that each of us will get on average 3,000 inputs on a daily basis about this good life. Each of these 3,000 inputs will help us see that there's something else we need or something else we need to become. There are different stories, different narratives selling us on this good life and we're just one purchase away from having it. One purchase away from happiness. Just one purchase away from feeling like we're enough. Materialistic consumerism constantly leaves us thinking and feeling that if I just had this little bit more, then everything would be where it needs to be. And if I don't, maybe I'm missing out on what could be. It has massive ramifications for the way our lives are orchestrated and conducted even as citizens in a society when materialistic consumption takes over a people people are no longer citizens scholars say but consumers citizens have duties and responsibilities to their fellow citizens consumers don't citizens care about others and their community consumers only concern themselves with what society and their economy can provide them and the church is not spared from this. When materialistic consumption captures the hearts of God's people, we can begin to treat Jesus, the Christian life, the church, like a commodity. Just one more good thing amongst many other things that might take us one step closer to the life that the world is holding out to us. Our Christian life can be summed up by various tasks that we're supposed to perform that all have measurable goals. One more thing on the to-do list to do in this life. Just a consumer life with a twist of Jesus. Churches are then left to compete with other providers of identity and meaning for people's attentions. One pastor actually said it this way, we must convince a sustainable segment of the religious marketplace of the need for our church and we must differentiate our church by providing more of the elements that people want. After all, in a consumer culture, the customer is king. Church leaders then become more concerned about whether a person is satisfied than if they're actually growing. What has materialistic consumption gotten us? Well, again, in 2013, The Guardian, no friend of the church, ran a study titled Materialism a system that eats us from the inside out. And they summarized all the science that psychologists and sociologists had come to on this topic this way. Materialism is both socially destructive and self-destructive. It smashes the happiness and peace of mind of those who succumb to it. It's associated with high levels of anxiety, depression, and broken relationships. 
as evidenced by the statistics I was reading earlier, where since 1957, according to the U.S. Bureau of Statistics and Census, the self-professed very happy American has declined every single year. Though, since 1957, when it plateaued and peaked, our houses are now two and a half times bigger on average and filled with things that people in 1957 couldn't even have imagined ever existing. But here's the craziest part, right? The same polls, the same studies, right, show that 85% of Americans think our priorities are out of whack. That's my word, not the statistics word, right? 88% said we're too materialistic. 93% feel that we are too focused on working and making money. 91% said we buy more than we need. 52% said they had too much debt. Friends, this is cognitive dissonance at the highest order. We collectively go, this is the problem. It's just not mine. It's everybody else's. And we talk a really good game about what matters most to us and what should matter most to us, evidenced even by these statistics saying that the world around us is broken. But if we're really honest, our own lives, our own schedules, our own wallets might tell a very different story. Francis Schaeffer, in his great book, How Then Shall We Live, prophesied, and I use that word specifically, prophesied that when the day came in the Western Christianity, in American Christianity in particular, that our culture swallowed the lie that truth was actually dead, we'd be left with two primary values. Personal security, personal prosperity. Schaefer said that once Americans accept these values, they'll sacrifice everything to protect their own personal peace and their own personal affluence. It's the gospel of materialistic consumerism, materialistic consumption. It is wrecking us. It is destroying us from the inside out. Is there a better way? Is there a better gospel? Is there a better hope? Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's the very first of the gospel accounts, the beginning of the New Testament. Make your way to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to jump right into the middle of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. I'll tell you, if you're chosen fans, that, that is what he is delivering in the very first episode of season three, but I haven't seen past it, so don't tell me anything. I had to make that disclaimer earlier in the first service too, because someone wanted to tell me all about what was going on. I haven't seen it yet. I know how the story ends. I've read it all the way through. I would just like to watch it for myself, all right? This is the middle of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's helpful for us as we come to the teachings of Jesus and we hear from him directly that we remember He's telling us about reality. These aren't pithy statements of encouragement. This is the king of kings telling us about the way things are. These are statements about reality. And the challenge for us is whether or not we're actually going to listen to him. You know, Jesus talks about the influence and, and the power of money and possessions and the lie that captivates our heart of trying to seek life and significance and enoughness and a security in them more than he talks about sex, heaven, or hell? More. It's as if Jesus understood that maybe there's something in particular about this lie, about this alternative gospel that's particularly dangerous and captivating for our heart. Which gets me, as I was preparing for this, this season, to one of my biggest regrets. I know I've shared a few of those throughout the season of Lent, but one of my biggest regrets as a pastor is that we haven't talked about this very much. 
Jesus talks about it more than heaven, hell, sex. We've talked about all those things more. And we've done it to our own detriment. I've done it. You, I've done it. It's my responsibility. I've done it to our collective detriment. Jesus understands that there's something in particular about this lie. About this alternative gospel. That has an outsized influence on our heart and on our soul and therefore on our life. And so he'll never stop talking about it. He, he starts even here in this sermon, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. And I say that, I should probably say, when I talk about regretting it, I'm sorry. Not just, we didn't do it and I regret it, but I'm sorry. Because it's damaged us. It's left us captive to something that can't ever provide what it promises. And as we listen to Jesus and we hear what he has to say, is exceedingly dangerous for our souls. He picks up the discussion in, in verse 19. One of the first things he's going to help us to see and understand is that money, stuff, possessions, whatever you lump into that category, they have influence. They have power. When it comes to your heart, they're never neutral. We like to talk about things like that being neutral, and they're not. They're not neutral. They have an outsized influence on your soul. Listen to him. Verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're all hunting and seeking treasures. We're all treasure hunters for lack of a better term. All of us name things in our hearts and lives, point to things in our hearts and lives that are important to us. And those things begin to be organizing and orienting things for how we go about living our lives. Our lives, our choices, our, our decisions are made to move towards gaining those things. Because what you treasure controls your heart you'll begin to interpret your life through it as a lens. And what Jesus says here is somewhat counterintuitive. It's, it's not what we would expect. It's probably not what we would naturally say. He actually says your heart follows your treasure. Your heart follows it. Randy Alcorn, you might be familiar with Randy Alcorn. He wrote a book entitled Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And he said, my heart always goes where I put God's money. What we do with our money and our stuff doesn't simply indicate where our hearts are. According to Jesus, it determines where they go. As surely as a compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. This is a remarkable truth, he said. If I want my heart somewhere, all I need to do is put my money there. Because it's not neutral. It matters. It has an outsized influence on our heart and on our soul. Our money, our stuff, where we put them, what we go after in them... They reveal to us where our heart really is. You know, for many of us, they become the places where we try to grasp and, and claw for that sense of enoughness with ourselves. Enoughness with the people that we surround ourselves with. Some kind of sense of significance can come through these things. That's what we're told all day long, every day. And like I said earlier, you didn't need social media to tell you this. 
The world around us has been telling us that there is a path to enough, being enough, feeling like you're enough, feeling like you're significant in the eyes of other people. If you only could have these things, be in this place, swim in this circle, whatever it might be. For others, it also becomes the place where our heart scratches and claws for some level of sense of security. I know if I can just put enough over here, then I'll worry less about tomorrow. I mean, that lie has been exposed in in great (laughs) relief in the last 10 years. So many of us have have been trying to lay up treasures, so to speak, in a market and an environment that is nothing but volatile at the best. And it's been exposing the reality of where so many of us have put our hearts in a search for security and peace and comfort. These things aren't neutral. They have an outsized influence on our hearts and on our souls. And this influence is extensive. In fact, we keep reading, starting in verse 22, we're going to see that the influence that these things have on our hearts and our souls is a blinding influence. Materialistic consumerism, it's blinding to us. Listen to what Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, notice that this little statement and teaching from Jesus is coming between two very clear and direct statements about money and possessions. We'll see the third in just a second. Which means this is related to those two. And he's making a pretty clear picture. Physically, you know that right now, no matter how bright it is in here, and we're going to get more lights in here one day, it's going to be even brighter, right? No matter how bright it is in here in the middle of the day, if we lost our collective sight and I said, let's get up and leave, you would all be tripping over each other, bumping over each other, tripping over the pews because you couldn't see because your whole body's in darkness. If you lose your physical sight, your whole body's in darkness, even if it's the noonday sun outside, right? Jesus is saying, how much so for the soul if it's in darkness? And what he's helping us to see is that this materialism, this consumption, this pattern of the world in which we live in, it literally changes the way we see things. And it changes it by blinding us to the reality that it's got a grip on our heart. It blinds us to the captivity of our own heart. It blinds us from being able to see that which truly matters. Here's an example. No one ever thinks that this is their issue. I told the first service this. I sat down in between the services to see if I was really right in what I was saying, if I was really accurate in how I was saying it. And it's true. 15 years of Redemption Hill, handful of years before Redemption Hill in ministry, people have sat down to talk to me about a whole host of patterns of sin, setting, all kinds of things. And we say here all the time, you can come and talk to us about whatever has captivated your heart, whatever sin has captivated your heart, and you're not going to shock me. You're not going to say anything to me that's going to shock me because I expect that you're a sinner, right? In all of these years, no one has ever sat down with me and said, I need to talk to you about the captivity of my heart towards this consumerism. Ever. No one's ever sat and said, this is a a reality of my heart. I am captivated by this thing. No one's ever sat down and said, my heart is just captivated by greed. Lack of a better word. I know nobody's going to think that's the problem, right? Because we don't think it's about us. Because it blinds us to the reality of its captivity on our hearts. It blinds us to the compromises that we make in the way we live. Like, I promise you, if you're sitting here and you're listening to me and you're going, well, you're right, that's not really my issue, that is a surefire sign that you're in trouble. 
Because every single one of us lives in this present age that is constantly trying to form and mold and shape our hearts and our hopes in its image. You're not the exemption from this. It blinds us from seeing the reality of how captive our hearts are to the false hopes it holds out, which then blinds us from actually asking honest questions of ourselves and of our heart about the way we actually live. Because we don't think it's our problem, because we're blind to the reality of, of its grip on our hearts, we don't see the need we have for the ongoing sight of the Holy Spirit to show us how captive our hearts are to the lies of materialistic consumerism. And so we live without the honesty and the humility born of the Holy Spirit in that, and we don't ask ourselves the honest questions. Do I really need to spend that much on what I'm driving? What I'm wearing, where I'm living, I mean, how much more generous with my resources could I be if I shifted this or, or shifted that? We don't ask the honest questions of ourselves like that because we're blind to the reality that our hearts are captivated by this lie of materialistic consumerism. So we're not inviting the Holy Spirit in to help us to see. Because we think it's not our issue, right? We immediately think of someone else who spends more than we do or who spends more than we think someone should and we let ourselves off the hook. We don't ask because we're blind. We're blind to our need for the honest examination of the Spirit and the help of even one another. As much as I've said no one's ever come and said, this is my besetting sin, my heart is gripped by this sense of consumerism or greed or whatever word you want to put on it, consistently, to my own shame, and I wouldn't be surprised then if it's not replicated in the church that we lead, I have not been in a consistent group of other believers where we have sat down to not just study the scriptures and pray, but kind of just help one another see the, the darkness of our hearts to confess and repent where we sit down and we talk about, are you reading the Bible? Are you praying? Are you looking at things you shouldn't look at? Or, you know, are you getting angry at your family? Are you getting angry at your job? Are you being lazy with your work? I mean, that's, that's getting personal, right? We don't even talk about that. But I've never consistently been in a group where we've sat down and said, all right, let's talk about how much we're spending on ourselves. I know that I can be gripped by this sense of needing all these other things and, and not being content with what God has provided me with. Let's talk about how much we're spending on ourselves, how much we're, we're giving, how generous we're being, what changes we can make, how easy we're captivated by this. Never. So why would I expect that you are? It's blinding. We don't see the actual captivity of our hearts to this deception and so we don't ask but Tim Keller thinks it reflects on this reality and he says it's astounding that we live in the place we live in the time we live and we don't think about the possibility that we're greedy or that we personally are consumed by consumerism money and things aren't neutral they have an outsized influence on our hearts and on our souls. And the lie of materialistic consumerism is blinding to us. Blinding to the captivity of our own heart towards it. And then Jesus says one other thing. This consumeristic materialism, materialistic consumerism... It in itself is an alternative kingdom to his. Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. He doesn't say should not. You cannot serve God in money. It's not possible. They are rival kingdoms that are mutually exclusive of one another. This is Jesus talking about reality. 
This is Jesus talking about what really is. This is serious. Theologian Craig Blomberg says it's arguable that materialistic consumerism is the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for our hearts and souls today. Jesus proclaims that unless we're willing to serve him wholeheartedly in every area of life, but particularly with our material resources, we can't claim to be serving him at all. You can't serve both. And no one escapes from serving one or the other. Your heart will tether itself to one or the other. Jesus is describing the heart as a battlefield. A place of conflict between two rival kingdoms. And only one will master your heart. And shape your desires and shape your actions. Paul Tripp's counselor, many of you are familiar with him. Tripp says that the issue that Jesus drops into the middle of his teaching right here in Matthew 6 is simply this. Either you are investing your life in the pursuit of money and what it will get you, or you're investing your life in pursuit of God and what he says is a value. Everyone's life is organized by the functional worship of one of these two kingdoms. Everyone. No one's exempt. For many, he says, yes, we're, we're thankful we've been saved. We probably won't stop going to church anytime soon. But something else has captured our imagination and organizes our lives. He calls this king money. We can call it king consumption. King consumption has whispered big promises in our ears. And we've believed his lies. We live in hot pursuit of what he has no right to promise and no power to deliver. True life. So in our lack of fulfillment, we keep spending more to acquire more, but it doesn't work. Not only does it not work, if we keep listening to Jesus right here in this sermon, he says it does nothing but leave us in increasing anxiety. Look at what he says, verse 25. Therefore, because of these truths of reality about life in a fallen world, in particular in relation to your heart and your stuff, because of what I just told you, about its blinding effect, its outsized influence, the fact you cannot serve both God and me. I'm telling you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body or what you'll put on, because those are the things that make us most anxious when our lives are lived trying to find some level of enoughness and security in them. Where does so much of the anxiety come from? from trying to find that kind of a sense of enough and worth and security in the things we put on, in the places we live, in the things we drive. When we get closer to thinking we're going to have it, the goalpost shifts and all of a sudden we're anxious again. When it gets threatened to go away, all of a sudden we're increasingly anxious. We live on the edge of ongoing anxiety because we fall and pray to a lie. Our hearts have been captivated, he said, by a rival kingdom. This is reality. Well, is there any hope then in a fallen world? Yes. But we tend to go in the wrong direction for the hope. Lately, it's been pretty chic, especially in the church, to see this reality a little bit and run directly towards living in a minimalistic way. Minimalism in itself isn't the answer. There might be aspects of it that along the way will prove to help curb and guardrail some of these realities in our heart, but it, minimalism, strategic budgeting, all that stuff might prove to be helpful, but even they in themselves can just become another sense of significance and security for our broken hearts. The problem is the heart, and they can't change the heart. What we need is something that can only come from the gracious hand of God himself, what we need is a sight. What we need is a clarity of eye that only the Holy Spirit can give that sees Jesus as a supreme treasure in this life. 
You know the famous verse in John 3, when God so loved the world? When the fullness of his eternal love was put on display. When it was so visible that everyone walking in that place could literally see it and touch it. When that love took action, he gave his only son. His response to a self-obsessed world, blinded, full of sinners, was to give. It was to give his son. His son, who in the presence of the Father for all of eternity, had the most significant status. The greatest security. He didn't consider those things something to be clung to, held tight to, grasped, Paul says, but he came and he took the form of a human and he lived in the pressure cooker of the world that we live in, tempted in every way as we are, tempted to conform to the consuming-driven, consumption-driven life in the world in which he lived. Yet he never gave in. Out of a superior delight in who his father is, he never gave in. And then, in the most magnificent display of generosity and sacrifice, he took the penalty that you and I deserve for a life lived towards a rival kingdom. A life lived thinking that in something that we can have, we could actually be something. And something that we could live in or wear or drive or be around, we would actually be enough. A life lived of thinking that whatever we could put on or whatever we could eat or wherever we could live would actually provide the security our hearts desire. In his body on the cross, in the grandest display of generosity and sacrifice. He paid the penalty we deserved. And in his resurrection from the grave, he conquered the kingdom of consumption. Because of his generosity and his sacrifice, you and I, we don't just enjoy freedom from guilt and, and from punishment, but we enjoy the freedom that comes from being full sons and daughters of God. In the greatest display of generosity and sacrifice, Jesus laid aside his significance and his status and his security to make us his own. What we need is for the Holy Spirit to break through the blindness and the darkness to help us to see Jesus, to help us to enjoy Jesus, to help us to see reality according to Jesus and to crave life with him according to his way. Jesus said, look around. After he's teaching about the money and the possessions, he said, look around. You're forgetting whose you are. You're getting so anxious and so caught up in all of these things. You're forgetting whose you actually are. In verse 31, he says, don't be anxious saying, what am I going to eat or what am I going to drink or what am I going to wear? That's what the Gentiles seek after. That's the other kingdom. All their security, all their significance, all of those things are wrapped up in what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and where they're going to live. And they live in constant anxiety because of it. But not you. But not you. Your heavenly Father knows exactly what you need. He is your father. He knows. He's never at a loss to know what's good for you. He's never at a loss for the wisdom to supply for you everything that you need. Right? Go back and listen to Jesus this week. He says, just look around. And if he clothes the, the lilies and the grasses of the field in greater splendor than Solomon, and they're here today and gone tomorrow, how much more so you, his child, the one created in his image and likeness, the one he created for all of eternity. How much more so you? Friends, we need the sight that can only come from the Holy Spirit to help our blind hearts see, see the grace and glory, the sacrifice and the generosity of Jesus to give us eyes to see him, 
to give us eyes to see how captive our hearts are to the lies of a rival kingdom. Just how captive we are to the false promises held out by the world of consumerism. As he gives us eyes to see Jesus so clearly, to see honestly and humbly the reality of our own heart's captivity, you know what happens? Freedom comes. Freedom comes for us to begin laying up treasures in heaven. With our lives and with our decisions, casting aside the weight and the burden and the drag of consumerism. In fact, if you go back and look at verse 22, when Jesus says there, if your eye is healthy, elsewhere in the Bible, do you know how that word is translated? If your eye is generous. The more we see and enjoy Jesus and treasure him and desire his kingdom. Do you know what happens? As the Holy Spirit gives us sight and we see Jesus for who he is, we see our hearts for where they are, and we see his grace and his majesty and his mercy and his generosity and his sacrifice towards us. Do you know what happens? Our sight gets more generous. We begin to live out and reflect the same kind of sacrifice and generosity of our king with our lives. There's a greater desire and a sense of the Spirit's power within us to deny the old self's cravings to find that worth and that significance and that security in the things of this world. We can put those things to death daily as the Holy Spirit continues to help us to see our captivity to the lie, but... Jesus' provision, his defeat of that kingdom. And all of a sudden, the decisions we make with our stuff and our resources look different. Tim Keller said it this way. I'll let, I'll let Papa Keller take us to the, to the point here. He said, we begin to live the cross of Jesus out in our own economic lives. That means that you and I begin to find ways to give in a way that sacrifices our lifestyle. If we're giving, but it's not cutting into the way that we live, if there's no cross in our economic life, then we may not be responding to Jesus as he responded to us. He said, now naturally, he's writing. He's a, he goes on to say naturally that when we think about this in the life of the church, for most people, a tithe or 10% of our income is the goal. And Keller says that's a good figure to think about in terms of giving. That's a good way to tell whether the gospel is working in your heart. Because if the gospel is working in your heart and you see what Jesus has done for you, 10% doesn't seem like much, does it? Like if the Holy Spirit is giving us eyes to see the generosity and the sacrifice of the Father and the Son on our behalf, 10% doesn't sound like a whole lot. He said, but what if Jesus had just tithed his blood? What if Jesus' sacrifice was just 10% of his body? We'd still be lost. Jesus' love and generosity went way past that. He says for most of us, right, 10% means a sacrifice in how we live. There will be a cross in that for most of us. But increasingly in America, there are people for whom 10% does not make a dent in how you live. And 10% isn't the point anyway. That's just a rule of thumb. It's a good way to get started. But here's the, here's the question. The cross is the standard. Is there a cross in your economic way of living? It begins to come as a step of freedom and a way of freedom as the Holy Spirit continues to give us eyes see Jesus for who he is and see the captivity of our own hearts can you imagine what could happen if the church were captivated by the gospel in such a way that we truly let it shape the way that we lived including our own personal sense of economics we're going to talk about global missions at the grace gathering this afternoon could you even imagine if the church, not just Redemption Hill, but the church was captivated by the gospel and the teachings of Jesus weren't just helpful suggestions for how we should live, but we finally understood them as reality. 
statements of reality. Imagine what could even begin to happen if you were with us weeks ago when we started this series and we talked about some of just the global statistics of need, suffering. What could happen if we were so captivated by the generosity and the sacrifice of the Son on our behalf? And the Holy Spirit helped us to see just how captive our hearts have been to the lie of materialistic consumerism. And he was setting us free day by day to live. It was the kingdom of Jesus and the way of Jesus, even with our economics. We need his help to see day by day where we're captive to the kingdom of consumerism. We need to want the honesty and the humility that comes from knowing I'm no exception to this rule. I live in this world. The same pressures are are seeking to mold my heart and my hopes according to its patterns and its lies. I need the Holy Spirit to help me see. We need to crave the honesty and the humility that comes with wanting to see and knowing how it's impacting us to invite the Holy Spirit in to help us to see and then to invite one another in to help us, as long as it's today, not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and the deceitfulness of these alternative kingdoms. Help me see where this has a grip on my heart. Help me see where it's shaping the decisions that I'm making. For that to happen, we're going to have to get a lot more honest with each other. But it's the way of freedom. Friends, Jesus has conquered the kingdom of materialistic consumption. He has given us his very spirit. He's inviting us to a deeper, richer, and more satisfying way. The question in front of us, again, as we go through this season of examination, is do we believe him? Do we really believe him? Let me pray for us, and then we're we're going to respond together to his word. Father, we need the exposing light of your Holy Spirit to help us to see the beauty, the majesty, the steadfastness of your love to us in your son and his way and that same exposing light to help us see how captive our hearts are to alternative kingdoms, to to lies that the acceptance and the security that our hearts crave are found in what we can have and who we can be around and where we can be and not in you and your son. We need to see that. We start by opening up our eyes to the fact that we're not exceptions to the reality that our hearts are captive. Creating us a longing to live with that kind of honesty and humility and that kind of craving for the sight that comes from your spirit. Or give us a imagination, a holy imagination of what our own lives and what our lives together as your people could look like as your gospel takes a tighter grip on our hearts, goes down deeper into our hopes, into our wants, and begins to shape in very practical ways the way that we live. But we ask that you would do that for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.